Good evening. My name is Sergio Verdu, and on behalf of the uh, uh, Public Lectures Committee of the University, I'd like to uh, welcome everyone to tonight's Spencer Trask lecture. lecture. This lecture was uh, founded in 1891 with a gift from Spencer Trask of the class of 1866 for the purpose of securing the services of eminent lecturers to deliver public uh, uh, speeches before the university on subjects of special interest. Uh, lecturers have included Niels Bohr, Arnold Toynbee, T.S. Eliot, and Bertrand Russell. Tonight's distinguished lecturer will be introduced by Laura Landweber, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology, who specializes on the origins of genes, genomes, and the genetic code. Professor Langover. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be introducing Swante Pabo's lecture this evening. Um, I'll begin by simply saying he's actually not a stranger to New Jersey. Um, from browsing his CV online, I learned that as an undergraduate student, he'd actually spent two summers here at the Roche Institute um, learning a little bit more about research. He went on to do his PhD in, back in, in Sweden at the University of Uppsala, and then amongst his postdoctoral work that followed, he worked with one mentor, the late Alan Wilson at Berkeley, and Alan Wilson um, really became one of the fathers of um, the field of molecular evolution that you'll be about to sample this evening. Um, he's currently, as you can see, directing the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, and this is an institute which is really wholly dedicated to the study of human evolution. Just a few brief comments. Um, Swante is really a leader in the field of ancient DNA, one that I've been immensely fascinated with for years. Um, and he's, in fact, one of the founders of what, what's been called lately molecular archaeology, and you'll hear much about this, this or some about this this evening. And his research has been in that field as diverse as probing Neanderthal population genetics from the few samples that one can actually extract good DNA from. Um, but he's also um, been more entertainingly able to query, for instance, the last supper of some extinct animals or extinct populations by probing, um, yes, paleofecal samples or molecular scatology might be a field emerging from that. So I, I would call that molecular gastronomy. Uh, and... Some of his work has actually expanded into many different fields, including RNA processing and also the study of um, evolution of the genetic code. So his re research areas are very diverse. But now he's focusing his efforts, as you can see tonight, on human evolution questions that um, we all ponder often very deeply. He's been the recipient of numerous honors and awards. Um, just one example is a recent award called the Leipzig Science Prize. And... That's all I'll say about his background, and I look forward as much as you do to hearing his talk tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. And ladies and gentlemen, so what I'd actually like to start out by doing is then reminding you about the fact that this year, 2003, is a very historic year in the exploration of our genome. Because 50 years ago, in 53, Watson and Crick discovered the structure of DNA, the famous double helix. And this spring, almost on the day 50 years later, 
an almost complete version of one human genome became available through the efforts of a huge international consortium largely based in this country. And this has, of course, opened up enormous new possibilities to understand our biology and to improve medicine, but it has also opened up new uh, ways to approach our history. And it's some of the aspects of that that I'd like to explore with you tonight then. But before we start that, I just want to remind all of you that our genetic material, our genome, is stored on 23 pairs of chromosomes in all the cell nuclei of our body, and that we have inherited one of these chromosomes in each pair from our mother and one from our father. And let us also remind ourselves about the fact that the DNA molecule, the information in it is stored in the sequence of four building blocks, abbreviated T, A, and C and G, and that they are arranged such that they're present twice, actually, once on each strand. And wherever we have an A on one strand, we have a T on the other, wherever is a C on one, a G on the other, and so on. And every time a cell divides, there will be two new copies made of our genome, and that's made in such a way that these strands come apart, and two new strands are synthesized using the old strands as a template. And again then, wherever a G is present in the old strand, a C will be built in. Where a T is present in the old, an A will be built in, and so on. And this process is very accurate, but as you know, nothing is perfect. So now and again, a misincorporation will happen. A wrong base will be built in. And if that happens in our germline, so it has the potential to be passed on to the next generation, and if it's not being repaired rapidly, it will then appear as a mutation, as a difference between DNA sequences when we sample individual chromosomes in a population. So if we, for example, go and sequence for a tiny part of our genome, two humans, we'll find that almost all the bases are identical, but here and there, there will pop up a difference. And these differences, these mutations then, accumulate approximately as a function of time. So the longer two segments of DNA don't share a common ancestor, the more differences will have accumulated. So if we do a chimpanzee for this part, we might have found one difference between the two humans, and between the chimps and the two humans, we might find three differences. And what you do when you try to then reconstruct the history of such a segment of DNA is to try to estimate the most likely mutational history that would have given rise to this differences you observe today. And you generally depict such an estimate in the form of a tree like this. In this case, it's very trivial. The two human DNA sequences trace back their ancestor to common ancestor quite recently, and much further back is there a common ancestor shared also with the chimp. So what one can then do is to sort of do this systematically across our genome and compare within and between species and try to sort of draw conclusions about different questions. And the different areas I'd like to sample is first a very few minutes discussing between species relationships of humans and the great apes. Then we'll spend quite a bit more time on within species variation in humans, variation in the human gene pool. We will then spend some time on looking on variations within the Neanderthals and the relationship between Neanderthals and contemporary humans. And in the end, I'd like to just discuss one particular gene, which I think is an example of what this field will deal with in the next few years to a big extent. That's genes involved in traits that are unique to humans, in this case, speech and language.
So if we then start with the between-species relationships and just ask the most trivial question you might want to ask, who would be our closest relative? So in this tree sense, then, the question boils down to which one of the African great apes is closer related to us. We know from many other data that the orangutans that live in Asia are further away. So the question is then, are the gorillas closer to us, or are the two chimpanzees, the common chimp and the pygmy chimp or bonobo closer to us, or are they maybe closer to each other? So the way we would then address that when we do molecular evolution is to take one part of our genome, in this case, a tiny part of the X chromosome, 10,000 base pairs on the long arm of the X chromosome here, sequence it from a single human, a single chimp, a single bonobo, a single gorilla, a single orang, and so on, and estimate the phylogenetic tree. And the answer comes out quite clearly. The human sequence traces its ancestry back to common ancestor shared with the two chimpanzees, and further back is there a common ancestor shared also with the gorilla. So it seems quite clear from this and a lot of other studies that the species we should compare ourselves to in the first place among our real living relatives are indeed the chimpanzees. So the amount of differences we find in these DNA sequences when we compare to the chimps is quite little. So of the bases we look at, on average, 1.2% differ so in this 10,000 base pairs, we would find 120 differences. In 100 base pairs, we found, on average, a single difference. To the gorilla is slightly more, 1.6%, and quite a bit more than to the orangutan. And since these differences accumulate approximately as a function of time, what we can do is to estimate how much time this seems to correspond to. And although those estimates are rather shaky, they are sort of in the ballpark of four to six million years for the common ancestor with the chimps, six to eight to the gorilla, and 12 to 16 to the orang. But so what we would now like to focus on now, we'll come back to the chimps, is to focus on the variation within humans, then, to focus on the within-species relationship in our own species. And we will again take the same part of the, our genome here, these 10,000 base pairs on the X chromosome. But this time, we will not sequence just a single human, but we'll go out and sequence 70 humans. And 70 humans that have been selected, such that they come from the entire world, approximately sort of distributed proportionally to how many people live at different places. So there are a lot of samples from Asia and Africa, there are very much less from the New World, since Native Americans are not that numerous compared to other groups in the world. And for each of these individuals, then, we sequence these 10,000 uh, base pairs. The first simple question we can ask, on average, how much differences do we find? Well, on average between two humans in these 10,000 base pairs, we find only four differences. So very few differences indeed whereas we find 120 on average to the chimps. So something like 30-fold more, depending on where you look, say, 10 to 30-fold more differences to the chimp than what you find on average within humans. But this is, of course, a very coarse way of looking at it. If we look on the actual sequences, so for each of these 70 individuals that you cannot read here, we'll sequence 10,000 base pairs. Only 33 positions varied in at least one individual. 
So we've written out only those 33 positions here, comparing it to one of the sequences. And whenever an individual is identical to the top sequence, it's just a dot. And where there is a difference, that difference is written out. So you will see that all these individuals have identical 10,000 base pairs. These guys have two differences to those. Those have two different differences to those guys, and so on. So the, there are a number of lessons I think we can draw from these types of studies. Four lessons that I'd like to sort of stress. The first question which we might ask is, well, we obviously see that many individuals share identical chromosomes here. Is there a geographical pattern to it? Is it so that those guys that have identical sequences here come from the same part of the world, those come from another part of the world, and those from another? So if we just look in one of these frequent sequences and see all they have the same sequence, and there's Bamileka, Efik, Mandenka, and this thing that I can't pronounce, so Africans, and we have the Philippines, Iran, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Sri Lanka, Holland, France, Italy, Orkney Islands, and England. So you already see the message. We find this sequence, the identical sequence, everywhere. So the first major lesson I'd like to stress is that when we look at any particular part of our genome, even though, say, a particular individual might trace their ancestry back to Europe, there is no, there is a big chance that she will share her particular sequence with someone, say, from Asia or from Africa rather than from Europe. So that's the first method, that we cannot, from how we look or where we come from, predict for any particular part of our genome what the variants we will carry. Does that mean, then, that there is no geographical information at all in this type of data? Well, that's not true, because what we could, can do is to look at these DNA sequences and estimate their history. And in this picture now, we have like a network, and each circle represents a particular sequence. And it's color-coded such that when it's a red, we find it in Africa in our samples. When it's white, it's in Asia, and yellow in Europe. And this is ancestral sequence. A chimp or a gorilla sequence would join this network here. And you will see that this ancestral sequence we find everywhere, in Africa, Asia, and in Europe. You will also see that we go nine branches away from this ancestral sequence, and you will notice that we find red dots on all these nine branches. That is, Africans are represented on all these branches, whereas non-Africans, people in Asia and Europe, are represented on only four of them. So the picture here is then that we find a lot of variation in Africa. Africans are sort of everywhere. And what we find outside Africa is a more limited amount of variation. But everything that we find outside Africa also have close relatives inside Africa. So what this looks like for this part of the DNA is then that we have a lot of variation in Africa. And a sort of a subset of that variation have gone out and colonized the rest of the world. Now, one might ask, this was then one tiny part of our genome. What about if you look at more loci? And Eric Landers' lab has recently published a study where they looked on several hundred regions across the genome in this way, and they looked at them in three defined populations, a European population, an Asian population, and an African population. And among those hundreds of regions, they find that 50% of them are shared that is, exists both in the European population, in the Asians, and the African population. 
only around 2% is unique in their sample to the Asian population or the European population, whereas 25% is unique to the African population. So it's indeed a genome-wide pattern, and that's why we like to say that from a genomic perspective, we're sort of all Africans. Either we live in Africa or in rather recent exile, because the pattern is almost wherever we look that we find a lot of variation in Africa, less variation outside, but everything outside Africa also has close relatives inside Africa. So that was the second lesson, I guess. So the third thing might, one might ask is, well, is there a correlation within an individual? If we looked at this X chromosomal sequence and if we go to another part of the region of the genome in the same individuals, do we find the same relationships to other individuals there? So in this case, we've actually gone to a part of our genome that is not in the cell nucleus, but outside in the mitochondria. It's a particularly simple form of inheritance since it's, we have only one type of a mitochondria in each individual, not two variants, since we're inheriting our mitochondria only from our mothers. So this part of our genome cannot exchange information with any other parts of our genome or any other variants in the population. And we go and sequence these 16,000 base pairs in this case from the same 70 individuals from the, around the world that we already looked at for their X chromosomes. And then we estimate the tree for the X chromosome and for the mitochondria and compare them to each other. And that's what we've done here. We have the X chromosomal tree here. We have the mitochondrial tree here. And the identical individuals have been connected with a line wherever they occur here to where they occur there. And you will see from the lines the message here. The third message is that it's a total mess, if you like. <laughs> Two individuals that are very closely related for the mitochondrial DNA here will not at all often be related in the X chromosomal tree whereas two individuals that may have identical sequences in this case, for example, in the X chromosome, have very different mitochondrial sequences from each other. So the third message from this type of data is then that, say, if this is me here, if I look at a particular part of my genome, I may be close, most closely related to someone in Africa. If I look in another part of my genome or a little further down the chromosome, I may be most closely related to someone from Asia, another part somewhere from Europe, and so on. So we are truly mosaics. As we walk along our chromosomes, our, the variants we carry have different histories and different relationships to the people around us. And it's actually even more extreme than that. As you would have noticed here in the X chromosomal variant we looked at, there are actually quite a few variants that account for most of the variation here. Indeed, one, two, three, four, maybe five major sequence variants. And this is indeed typical for most of the variation in our genome, at least half or probably more. But as we walk along a chromosome, we generally find two to seven major variants that account for the variation. And then it shifts and we have other variants here, three variants here, seven variants here, and so on. And when we inherit our chromosomes from our parents, we sort of sample from this pool of rather limited diversity on each such segment. So this individual has this setup, this individual has this. But since this world of variation is rather limited, that means that each of us actually carry quite a substantial part of the 
variation in the entire human gene pool, since we have, after all, drawn two copies out of these two to seven major variants that occur. In fact, on average, when we look at these major variants, each of us carry in the order of 30% of the entire variation of our species. So indeed, each of us carry a large part of the history of our species in ourselves, so to say. The last thing we might want to ask here is then, what's the time's perspective we're talking about here? How far back does this variation go? And or this sort of exit out of Africa. And then one part of our genome that's particularly easy to look at are the mitochondria, precisely because they are only one variant in each individual, and they will not exchange information with other variants in the population. So we can then, when we look at the mitochondrial tree here, we have a true sort of linear relationship back in time. And if we relate this to a chimpanzee sequence here, we see this now familiar pattern where the deepest branches are found in Africa, and only later the more shallow branches are found in non-Africans as well as Africans. And we can then estimate the time to the deepest branch among the humans here, and that turns out to be somewhere between 100 and 200,000 years. And this is sort of the reason for the assumption that the human history sort of goes back or that we share a common ancestor in a rather small population, maybe in the order of a couple of thousand individuals in Africa rather recently in the order of 100 to 200,000 years ago. But that, of course, brings us to a problem in this, because if we now believe that we all trace back to a rather small population in Africa just 100 or 200,000 years ago that then spread out over the world, it's of course clear to us that we were not alone at that time. 100,000 years ago, there were a lot of human forms around. We know that humans evolved in Africa over millions of years, and around 2 million years ago, left Africa in the form of Homo erectus and colonized Europe and Asia and Africa. So the question then comes, what happened with these other sort of older archaic forms of humans that existed in the old world and in Africa when modern humans appeared? And particularly of interest may be the Neanderthals, because we have a particularly rich fossil record of Neanderthals and are the best known sort of archaic forms of humans that we had. There were these rather robust types that existed in Europe and Western Asia, quite a bit robuster, as you will see, when you compare to an anatomically modern human from approximately the same time. So that brings us to sort of the next topic, which are then relationships to the Neanderthals. And this is primarily work of David Serre and Matthias Krings in our lab. So as I already mentioned then, sort of the Neanderthals trace their ancestry back to erectus-like forms and existed in Europe and Western Asia. Depending on a bit on how you define Neanderthals, they sort of appear 300,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago and disappear a little after 30,000 years ago. Anatomically modern humans appear first in Africa and the Middle East around 100,000 years ago, appear later in Western Europe, and go on to present day. So there are now sort of two very extreme views about what could have gone on around here. 
One is that what we see is sort of Neanderthals evolving into present-day modern Europeans here. That's sort of one almost caricature of what could have gone on. Another extreme view is that modern humans evolve in Africa, appear in Europe and Western Asia, do not interact at all genetically with the Neanderthals until the Neanderthals disappear. Those are very extreme views. Perhaps none of them is really true, but for any particular part of our genome, in fact, one or the other must be true. Either we have continuity with these archaic forms, or we have uh, no interaction with them. So this is then the view where we would have modern humans coming out of Africa, replacing archaic forms in Europe and Asia with no ad admixture, this is another version then where modern humans would still come from Africa, but actually there would be gene flow from Neanderthals into modern humans and from other erectus-like forms in Asia. And these two views now give very different sort of predictions of what the Neanderthal DNA sequence would look like. In this case, where there was gene flow from Neanderthals into modern humans, if that concerned mitochondrial DNA, for example, which we will study, we would expect to find a DNA sequence in the Neanderthal that's closer to present-day Europeans, or some sequences in present-day Europeans, than it is to individuals in Africa or in Asia. If there was no interaction here, this Neanderthal sequence would have no special relationship to European sequences, but go back to a common ancestor that it shared and is equally far away from individuals in Africa, in Europe, or in Asia. So we were very fortunate then in 1996 when we obtained samples from a Neanderthal specimen, and not just any Neanderthal, it was actually the Neanderthal from Neanderthal, so to say, the fossil that was found in 1856 in Western Germany and gave its name to this group of hominids. And I think we were actually quite fortunate in getting a sample from this very type specimen that has given its name to Neanderthals because paleontology is quite a difficult field often, and for almost any other Neanderthal specimen we've worked on since, there has always been someone coming telling us that it's not quite a typical Neanderthal. But if this Neanderthal is not a Neanderthal, then Neanderthals don't exist, so to say. <laughs> so we obtained two grams from the right humerus. It is actually quite difficult. It's the right humerus. It should be on this side. Uh, so we've got two grams of material from there, extracted it under sort of clean room conditions that you need to work under to avoid contamination from present-day humans. And we focused, as I already mentioned, on the mitochondrial DNA, both because it's more easy to retrieve from old specimens, because we have many copies of mitochondrial DNA per cell, and because it's particularly informative about human history. And there are a number of technical problems you have to deal with when you now look at something that is 30,000, 40,000 years old. From a modern specimen, you can sort of retrieve nice, long DNA sequences, whereas from these ancient things, the DNA is degraded to short pieces. So you will sort of to puzzle together a longer sequence. You'll have to do many short overlapping fragments. In addition, you have the problem that there is damage in the DNA that may cause mutations when you retrieve these sequences and sort of fake real mutations that would be there. So what you have to do is to repeat each experiment many times. 
So if you do it once, you may find these two substitutions. If you repeat it, this one may stay, but that one disappears and two others come. You repeat it again, those disappear. And you end up believing only those substitutions that you can reproducibly produce from every experiment you do. So if you do that, we did that for the Neanderthal then in many overlapping fragments, making sure that we only believe the sort of reproducible substitutions we see and reconstructed a longer segment of the mitochondrial DNA, a particular hypervariable part of the mitochondrial genome, and could then, for the first time, compare this extinct form of a human to the present-day variation. We could compare it, actually, to a couple of thousand humans from around the world, and this is just a histogram where we made human-human comparisons to tens of thousands of pairwise comparisons, plotting here the fraction of those comparisons that have one difference, that have two differences, three differences, four differences, and so on. And it's a distribution like this with a mean around six or seven. This is the amount of differences between the Neanderthal and the modern humans. It's a distribution like this with a mean and a mode around 26, 27. So you see that it's quite extreme. There's a tiny bit of overlap here, but it sort of falls quite distinctly outside. For comparison, this is a human-chimp comparison here. So what you may also then say is that if we had contribution Neanderthals to modern humans in Europe, we would expect to find some sequences in Europe that would be closer to the Neanderthal than to other humans. So if we divide the database at that time into 500 Europeans, 500 Africans, 500 Asians, and people from the Americas and Oceania, and we look at the mean and the range, we see that it's the very same everywhere, 27, 28 differences, and there are no ones that are particularly close here in Europe. And if we estimate a phylogenetic tree then for the relationship of the Neanderthal sequence to the humans, we will see the human sequences trace their ancestry back to 100, 200,000 years ago, as we said, and around half a million or a little more back do we have a common ancestor shared also with the Neanderthal. So this Neanderthal sequence clearly falls outside the variation of modern humans. But there is, of course, a lot of debate about could there have been some gene flow after all. And so one way, one, one thing one needs to do to address that is, of course, to look at more Neanderthals, because who knows how much variation there was in Neanderthals. Perhaps there were some that would even fall here and look ancestral to modern humans. So, so far there has been five Neanderthal sequences determined. A second one from uh, the Caucasus here, done by a British group. Two sequences from a site in Croatia, in India. And a second one from the original site in Neanderthal here that we did last year. So we now have five Neanderthals we can look at and estimate such a phylogenetic tree. And this is how it comes out. The Neanderthals fall nicely together, clearly outside the variation of modern humans that is now tens of thousands of individuals that have been looked at. So there is no indication that we would find any Neanderthal sequence of which is sort of ancestral to modern humans. What we can also start doing now then is start beginning to ask questions about how much variation there was in the Neanderthal population 30, 40,000 years ago. As you have seen now, humans have quite little variation and actually quite a lot less variation than what we find in the chimpanzees and the gorillas. 
So we now have five Neanderthals, and I will be the first to admit that five individuals is not enough to really gauge the variation within the species, but I'll do it anyway. To say, if you allow me to say these five individuals, where do they fall? Do the average difference between them look like the humans, quite little, or like the apes in having quite a lot? And the answer is like this. They fall dead on the human variation. So if you allow me to sort of guess from these five first Neanderthals we have, I would guess that the Neanderthals were like the humans in having quite little variation among them. Probably then because they came from an earlier expansion out of Africa than us. So although it's still certainly possible that there was some gene flow between Neanderthals and modern humans, it cannot have been very extensive. So it's more this situation that is representative of what we know currently, although I don't exclude, as I said, some gene flow. And as Neanderthals also have reduced variation, perhaps, as in modern humans, it's reasonable to say they also came from an expansion earlier. So it may actually be that these sort of successive expansions are typical of human history. And that sort of brings us to the last major question that I wanted to address, and that I think will be the major question in this field over the next five or ten years. That is to sort of find the genetic background for those traits that have caused these expansions. Because we, of course, believe that these expansions happened because some individuals in a population acquired some genetically determined trait that made them able to expand and replace other populations. So that brings us to sort of the last topic here, which is the sort of the genetic background for human-specific traits, traits that we all share and that sets us apart from other closely related organisms, such as the great apes. And an example I would like to bring to you is the first gene we know of that has to do with language and speech. And it's worked by Wolfie Enard primarily in our group, and it's a collaboration with Tony Monaco's group in Oxford. And Tony and Simon Fisher studied a very famous family in Britain, the KE family, which goes over four generations and where a severe language and speech problem segregates. So the affected individuals are dark here, and those of you who are geneticists will immediately see that this segregates in the family as if it was one single dominant autosomal gene that was responsible for this. And this is quite a severe language problem, I should say. A naive listener will not understand an affected individual, but members of the family will sort of learn to understand them. So this allowed Tony's group to identify the gene, and it turned out to be a gene called FOXP2 that they discovered then. And it's a member of, a, it's a transcription factor, so the function of this gene is to turn on and turn off other genes. And it's a member of a larger group of such genes, forked domain transcription factors. So we started out the collaboration then, and it turns out to be located on chromosome 7 here. And we started out in collaboration with Tony then to look at the evolution of this gene, starting out very naively saying that a mouse cannot speak, so it should not have this gene, or the gene should look very different in the mouse. And the major form of a pr the protein encoded by this gene encodes 715 amino acids. So we started out by sequencing this gene in the mouse, which was not available in the mouse genome at that time. 
and it turned out to have only three differences to the mouse. So out of 715 amino acids, there are only three differences to the mouse. It's one of the most conserved proteins we know of to the mouse. It's up there with histones and proteins like that. So that was a bit disturbing to us. However, it looked a little bit more interesting when we then went on and studied the other apes. Because it turns out that if we look, for example, on the chimpanzee, the chimpanzee has a single difference to the mouse and two differences to the human. So sort of out of these three differences to the mouse, two of them happen on the human lineage. So if we look in a tree here, we'll see that from the common ancestor of the human and chimp, only a single amino acid change happened on, say, 140 million years or so to the mouse, whereas two changes happened there on the 5 million years or so on the human lineage. That looks striking, and you can do certain tests and say this is significant, but it's, of course, so few observations, so this could still be by chance that just two changes happen to happen here. There's also a private change of the orang lineage there. But so what I should also say that if you look on the gene, these two changes occur very close to each other in one particular exon here. So what Wolfi said was, well, if these changes were indeed happened sometime in human history and were of sort of positive selective value so that carriers of these mutations reproduced better and transmitted their chromosomes more frequently than others to the next generation then we should see this in the pattern of variation surrounding these two amino acid changes in the gene. So what it did was to go and sequence 14,000 base pairs adjacent to these amino acid changes, most of them then non-coding. And we have to become a little theoretical here and say, what would we expect from the variation if there was indeed positive selection going on here? Well, if we imagine that sometime in the past there was in this part of the chromosome, quite a bit of variation in the population, and variants here that are as white balls here along the different chromosomes. Then one positively selected event happened, and this should really be red, but it turns out to be black on this projector. One substitution here happened, the black substitution, that is positively selected. So this part of the chromosome will then spread in a selective sweep and replace all other segments in this area. So we'll have a lot less variation and then new mutation will start accumulating around this selective site which is now present in all members of the species. This is quite simple but unfortunately the reality is not that simple because you also have recombination. And the effect of recombination will be to sort of lift in old variation around this selective site as the sweep happens, to sort of lift in this variant here, that variant there, and so on. So if we, with recombination, then look at the variation we expect to see after such a selective event with a region where it hasn't happened, we would see two differences here. We would see an excess of rare variants that occur on only a single chromosome among, say, the 40 we would look at compared to here. And in addition, we would see an excess of common variants, this one that occur in all variants except one, say 39 out of 40 chromosomes in our case. So if we then sort of model what we would expect to see in FOXP2 under a model where no selection happened and would plot variants occurring in one chromosome, the frequency of them, two chromosomes and so on, with no selection, we expect a distribution like this. And the real data, whoops, sorry, looks like this. 
So we see a vast excess of rare variants and in addition an excess of very common variants, exactly as predicted. So very satisfying. But you could of course ask, how frequent is this in the human genome? Does every other gene we would look at sort of show this pattern? And there are not that many genes that have been studied in this level of detail yet. However, there is a study with over 300 genes from a biotech company, Genesons, which have looked on the distribution of this excess of rare variants. And if we look at that, FOXP2 is the second most extreme case that we know of. So it's quite clear that FOXP2 was sort of the target of quite extreme positive selection in human history. So that then leads to this hypothesis, because the only two things we really know is that when we have this mutation in the family that sort of kills one copy of the gene, we have a severe language and speech problem. We also know that FOXP2 is extreme in having been selected recently in human history. And, the most, and we don't know that that selection really had to do with language, but it's perhaps the most reasonable hypothesis at the moment. So if we make that leap of faith for a moment and say that selection had to do with the acquisition of language, does that mean then that this is the gene that gave us language? If we put this gene into a chimp, it would start speaking to us. I don't think that that's the case, since if you look carefully at the individuals in the family with a mutation in this gene, the problem they have seems to be, it's quite debated, but the major problem seems to be a problem with articulation, with the sort of millisecond coordination I need between my vocal cords, my tongue, and my lips when I speak to produce reasonably understandable language. So they are actually have other problems of sophisticated muscle coordination also, but the idea is that this is sort of primarily manifest itself in everyday life in speech. So if we believe that these mutations then gave better muscle coordination that allowed sort of sophisticated articulation, that would of course only be a positive selective factor in a society where already vocal communication was important. So what I believe if I would guess was that we had some kind of a proto-language and that the FOXP2 would then represent some kind of a genetic improvement of that language or an adaptation to language so that it appeared in a, in a time when already language was very important in our history. But if we still make this leap of faith then and believe this, then it would of course be quite interesting to know when did this, these mutations happen. And there are some time points that are particularly of interest. As we know, sort of human forms leave Africa somewhere around two million years ago in the form of Homo erectus. So one might ask, did they then have language as facilitated by FOXP2, if you believe this, already two million years ago? We have seen that the divergence to the Neanderthals, according to the mitochondrial data, is around half a million years ago. So we could ask, was this shared with the Neanderthals or unique to humans? Unfortunately, it is quite hard to date such a selective sweep that has been fixed in all individuals. But Molly Przeworski in our institute works on methods for doing that, you have to make a number of assumptions that I will not go through. Some of them are quite well-founded in what we know, and some are a bit more shaky. But if you believe these assumptions, you can sort of estimate an approximately, approximate 95% confidence interval for the time 
when this mutation came to fixation, to be present in all individuals. And that is in generations here, 6,000 generations. So say 20 years per generation, it would be 120,000 years. Now there are some things in this model that we haven't taken account of because we simply can't model them. We don't know how they happen. And one of them is population expansion. And that would push this date backwards. Perhaps in extreme models, even twice as far back. So we would come somewhere to, this would say, 200,000 to 250,000 or so. But so we can clearly exclude that this would go back millions of years in time. And although we can sort of formally say if we exclude it or not, it seems to exclude also the Neanderthals and indeed be an adaptation that would be unique to modern humans then. And it would then fit quite well with sort of models of human evolution as propagated by Richard Klein at Stanford, for example, saying that the spread of modern humans might have been linked to the acquisition of modern language. But this remains only a hypothesis, because as I said, well, the only things we know is that if you knock out the scene, you have a problem with speech and language, and we know it was recently selected. So how can we come forward with this? And this, I want to end on sort of discussing some of the problems with this, because I think this is typical of a new class of genes that we will find in the next few years. Genes involved in human-specific traits that we don't share with other organisms. So the question is how we can then prove this hypothesis. So what we would like to do is to sort of take the fox, a chimpanzee fox P2 and put it in a transgenic human. We would like to take a human fox P2 and put it in a transgenic chimp and then see what language abilities they would have. However, there are many problems with those experiments, so we can't do them. So what will we be left with? Well, what you can do is, of course, go out and screen the population for sort of finding the ancestral variants in the human population as back mutations. And we screened a couple of thousand individuals so far and haven't found any. You can also, since the function of this gene is to turn on and off other genes, you can introduce it in cells, in tissue culture, in a laboratory, and turn on the gene and see what genes are turned on and off by FOXP2, and is there a difference between the chimp and human variant? And we're in the process of doing such experiments. What you can also do is to introduce the sort of ancestral chimpanzee version and the human version into transgenic mice, or even engineer the mouse FOXP2 to carry the human changes that would now be regulated as a proper FOXP2 in the mouse but have the human version of it. So what one would do is sort of put in these two critical amino acid changes that we think are critical into the mouse gene and then have a mouse that would carry the human version of FOXP2. And that mouse has just been born. And then we stand in front of the next problem, namely, how should we test this mouse? Because we're looking for a sort of trait that is inherently human. We will, of course, try to speak to the mouse. <laughs> but if that fails, we're sort of left with sort of thinking about what we could do. And there are things such as perceiving rhythms or perceiving tone lengths that are problems with affected individuals in the family for which you can indeed think up tests in the mouse. But we really truly don't quite know how we should handle this, and I think it will take a lot of sort of biological insight, intuition, and creativity 
in the next few years for these types of genes that we will now find more and more to sort of think about how we could sort of, in an animal model, actually approach these human-specific traits. So although I then end on a sort of problem note, I hope that I have managed to convince you to some extent about the fact that by studying our genome we can learn quite a bit of new things about our history and what we share and how we differ from other organisms and that the next few years will be incredibly interesting when we will now more systematically be able to look for these types of differences between humans and say the chimpanzee and find more genes such as FOXP2. And I thank you for your attention. We have time for questions. There's one question here. There is a microphone around. Um, what do you think is the <clears throat> chance of your being able to sequence the FOXP2 gene from Neanderthals? Yes. So that would, of course, be really cool if we could look in the Neanderthals directly for these two critical changes in the FOXP2. So far, we have not been able to do single copy nuclear genes, only from permafrost remains. So we can do it, say, in mammoths of the same age. But I think it's really a question of temperature. So for some... So we have tried a lot of cave bears, trying different methods from the very same caves where we have the Neanderthals. So far, we've only been able to do, say, nuclear ribosomal genes that are still in several copies from them. But yeah, so with some technical improvements, it would be yes. So uh, I have a simple question. I noticed that when you put dots on that map showing where you'd selected uh, the individuals for, for comparing their genes, there were lots of dots in Africa. And the conclusion from that study was that there were a lot of changes within the genes of various individuals in Africa. But was that an artifact of the fact that you'd taken so many samples from Africa and not so many samples from Asia or, mm -hmm. or Europe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is, in our sample, a bit over-representation in Africa. But that is actually not the reason for finding this. Say, in, in the study of Eric's study, for example, they have the same individuals from Europe, the same number of individuals from Europe, Asia, and Africa, and also find this in a number of studies that show this. So in a sense, if you just want the variation of humans, you could study basically only Africans, if you would like. You would miss not that many variants by doing that. So that, that was already concluded from a previous study, and it wasn't the conclusion of this particular study, mm, that there no. was so much variation. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Question here. I was just wondering, uh, has it been possible to extract uh, DNA from humans that were contemporaneous with Neanderthals, i.e. Cro-Manian men? Yes, so uh, there are two papers that publish sequences from such remains. Um, it's actually a big problem with this field, is 
contamination. So that makes me hesitant to really believe those sequences outright. Those two sequences are perfectly compatible with this scenario. One is sort of Cro-Magnons in, in um, Italy, which have sequences that are identical to present-day humans. And the other ones are Australian sequences that sort of fall outside the variation of modern humans, but not as far away as the Neanderthals. However, we also know we have, for example, one site in Croatia where we have tried to do this, where we have uh, Neanderthal remains further down in the layers. We have anatomically modern humans higher up, so we thought this is wonderful. We will look in the same cave on what in sequences were there in the Neanderthals, what were in the modern humans. And we, as a sanity check, will test cave bare bones that we have all through the layers. So what we find is if we look for Neanderthal DNA, we find it in the Neanderthal remains and nowhere else. If we then look for modern human DNA, we find it in the modern human bones, we find it in the Neanderthal bones, and then we got worried and looked in the K-bears and we find it there too. So the big problem is that it's incredibly difficult to find remains that don't contain sort of a few molecules of modern human DNA from archaeologists touching them, from contamination in the laboratory or from the chemicals that come into the laboratory. So therefore it's sort of very hard to be absolutely convinced that when you do a Cro-Magnon bone and find a DNA sequence that exists also today that is truly the endogenous sequence of the Cro-Magnon. So we've recently done a non-published study that was just rejected by a big journal, but I'll talk about it here anyway, where we looked at five additional Neanderthals and four additional early modern humans, so Cro-Magnon remains, making sure that the molecular preservation is so good that we expect to find DNA in those remains. And again, we can show that we find modern human DNA in all the bones, no matter if they are Neanderthals or if they are uh, Cro-Magnons. But if we look for Neanderthal DNA, we find it only in the four Neanderthals and not in the modern humans. So we can only do it one way, so to say. We can look for the Neanderthal-like sequence and ask a question, is it there in all Neanderthal remains that are well enough preserved to expect DNA? And can we find it in any of the Cro-Magnon remains that are well enough preserved or not? I think that will really be the way forward in the next few years. If we make a, a sort of population model from that, we can now sort of, under certain assumptions sort of rigorously exclude the contribution of 25% or higher from the Neanderthals to modern humans, which still leaves quite a bit of room for some contribution, of course. Sorry, long answer to a short question. Just one question there, Dagen. Are there hypotheses that capabilities other than language allowed humans to replace Neanderthals? And if so, are there other genes that should be studied further? Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, language is, of course, just the sexiest hypothesis, if you like. Um, so that's why, and it's also a human-specific trait. I mean, that's why we threw ourselves on this gene, because it was the first gene involved in language. I certainly don't think it will be the only Gene. It's not even the only gene involved in adaptation to language, I'm sure. And we don't know what else would have caused Cro-Magnons to replace Neanderthals in other forms. It could even be something rather trivial. There are some paleontologists that sort of claim that it seems that at the age of death, 
Cro-Magnons tended to be a few years older than Neanderthals. And if you have a society where women get pregnant every two, three years, that may mean one more in the, a child per family, which over a number of thousands of years would make an enormous demographic difference. It may be something trivial that we haven't even really thought of today. But there are certainly other genes that will be of interest. And But I think the way to go will be look across our genome for these signals of selection and see where we find them, because then, then we don't need any previous hypothesis of what would be important and see what those genes are. But that's work that only can begin slowly now, because it means looking on many, many human genomes across the whole genome, and we don't really have technology for that yet. Thank you. Um, a question about the experimental technique that goes back to an answer you gave just a little bit ago. You showed one slide with scientists in, in clean room uh, uh, conditions, and yet the fossils, the earliest ones, go back to the 1850s where many humans yeah. must have touched them with their bare hands and so on. Is, yeah. is it almost a waste to go to those ends or? <laughs> yes. It's still, though, the situation. We do remove the surface of the bone and take the sample inside, so we hope to sort of get rid of most of the surface contamination. And we also know that if we don't work under clean room conditions, even our blank extracts with add no bone powder will turn out to be positive because we do have sort of dust in the air, for example, that you have at home. It's to a big extent skin fragments from yourself, which contain lots of DNA. So we sort of eliminate one source of contamination, but we, of course, don't eliminate what is on the bones, yeah. What is your confidence that the contamination of the surface doesn't diffuse or propagate into the center? Yeah, I do think it propagates in quite a lot. Bone is quite porous, and particularly if they have been washed, for example, in water, and the water had DNA in it, it will have penetrated in under the surface. Let's see, one, one last question over here. <clears throat> In your uh, frequency distribution of variation, that um, the, for a, within humans is highly asymmetric compared to the other two. Is there any reason for that? The frequency distribution of which was this of the? There's one graph showing the frequency distribution of the variations. Mm -hmm. And the human, very little, but it is highly, it has a very long tail. And then the other two is more or less symmetric and more mm -hmm. like a bell-shaped. Oh, wow. Shall we look at that? Hmm. Is that the mitochondrial variation where they had Neanderthal on there? Ooh, can we find that? Mm -hmm. I don't know if there is, is so extreme. Oh, sorry about this. So see, we'll soon see it there. Yes. Yes. I am not. Yeah, I'm not so sort of clear about that. That's a good observation, because you do have this is sort of a very naive way of looking at it, where you sort of take no account of multiple substitutions, for example. So I think that if you would correct, I don't know how it would look, but I haven't a clear answer to that, actually. I mean, there are clearly sort of some distances here that are higher, and some of them actually 0.2% of the 
differences are sort of higher than the closest distance from a Neanderthal to another sequence. But if you reconstruct a phylogenetic tree, they clearly fall apart because of this multiple hit problem. But yeah. Yes. Of course, we haven't sampled quite as much here. Right? We have a lot fewer, we have orders of magnitude less comparisons here, and there is a guy out there, so. Mm. Let us thank Dr. Paper once again. Mm -hmm.